This is The Danish Debate, a podcast about Danish society and politics. I'm your host, Peter Stannis. I'm a British journalist, and I want to explore the political and social landscape of the country that I've called home for 25 years. In this first season, we take a deep dive into the major issues ahead of the upcoming general election. We're talking climate, the media, immigration, and so much more. It's Danish politics from an international perspective, and hopefully you're going to better understand a country that I think is so often misunderstood. Today, we set the scene and examine the major issues that will shape the next general election, which must be held by June 17. Why has the environment and climate change become the most important issue to voters? Are we looking at a return of the left-wing social democratic government? And can we expect an easing of tough new immigration regulations brought about by the current right-wing government? To take us through these questions, I've invited in Christian Massen. He's a political commentator from Politica newspaper. He returned to Denmark last summer after four years as US correspondent. And before he joined Politica newspaper in 2010, he cut his teeth working at trade unions. And what, you're also a member of the Danish Social Democrat Youth at I some was, point? yeah. Wow. I was the president, even. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> uh, welcome, Mr. President Christian. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, uh, the subject today is, of course, the uh, the 2019 general election. It has to be held by June 17th. Why is that? So, our constitution is a little weird in this uh, matter because it says that there must be an election four years at you know uh, four years after the last election so basically the prime minister can uh, call the election at any point during these four years period and now the time is running out for him because he has to call it by june 17th i think uh 2019 so uh, he's running out of time even though he's behind in the polls so so prime minister laszlo Rasmussen, leader of venstra the the liberal party so, so he he belongs to the the right wing blue block, and then on his opposition is the is is the left wing red block. Tell me a little bit about this. What's what are these two blocks? So this time around, the whole thing's going to be a mess. Basically, we have twelve parties running. Seven of them are in what you call the blue block, which is basically parties supporting um, the prime minister, the the conservative, if you will, side of of government. And then we have uh, five parties that are on the left side of the spectrum. Uh, who are sort of trying to uh, agree about a a shared uh, candidate for prime minister, but in reality, everybody knows that the the alternative to Mr. Lars Lukas Rasmussen is uh, Mette Frederiksen, the leader of the Social Democratic Party and the uh, the opposition. So we have these two main parties: the Social Democrats on the left; they're the traditional leaders over there. Mm-hmm. You've got the Liberal Party on the right. Um, and then you've got uh, ten other parties. Uh, right. So, so how, do, how do you how do you form a government at all? And, and and is it true that you don't actually have to have a majority to form a government? Well, you don't need a majority. You need to not have a majority against you, which is uh, rarely has any practical uh, consequences. I will say, but but it means that. We always have coalition governments, basically. That is the norm here. We actually had the exception this time around that Lars Lugger Rasmussen started out uh, as a, a pure liberal party government. Only his party, I think he had like 17%, which was a very weak government that he later chose to expand. But the norm is to have coalition governments. That has been the tradition. And this time around, Lars Lugger Rasmussen started out in his own government and Mette Frederiksen, the opposition leader, has said that she's going to form her own government and not 
uh, uh, form a coalition with her traditional partners in the Social Liberal Party. So we have some very new stuff happening uh, in this election that everybody seems to want to go it alone. Okay, I mean the Social Democrats in 2015 they 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 were in government. Uh, they lost to Last Look Erasmus, and then and right. he came back into power. Tell me what happened in 2015. Uh, what sort of a government came out of that? You said there was a minority government, but obviously right. they, they had the support from from the other parties on the right wing. So basically, uh, Mrs. Helleturning Smith had uh, been running on a fairly left wing program. She was in a coalition government with the Socialist People's Party and the Social Liberal Party. You can see that's quite a spectrum to cover right there. But when uh, the votes had been counted and uh, the seats in parliament filled, she kind of changed that all around under pressure from the Social Liberal Party and went much more uh, mainstream centrist politics. I mean, she... She's married to Stephen Kinnock, the British MP, and has sort of a tradition of... Uh, the, Labour Party, right? This, yeah, yeah. And, and even new Labour. I yeah. mean, she's sort of in the Blairite tradition, and she completely reversed herself after the election. And a lot of people were like, hmm, this is not what we signed up for here. Um, so uh, Lars Lugge Rasmussen came back into power, uh, very much promising that, you know, uh, this whole mess of the last four years was going to be cleaned up. And lo and behold, he ended in more or less the same mess when he had trouble governing because one thing is getting a majority or not having a majority against you, as you said. Another thing is actually getting policy done. And he had a span from the uh, Liberal Alliance, which is sort of a hard liberal party in the... Libertarian. St- libertarian in yeah. the style of the uh, German FDP or yeah. uh, something like that. And then the Danish People's Party, which is, of course, our traditional uh, populist right-wing party. Uh, mm. So he's had some hard times uh, finding a, a, sort of a working majority in that coalition and hasn't really gotten a lot done these last four years. The main problem as well for him was that the populist, the, the Danish People's Party, were the largest party in power as well, weren't they? I mean, and they really came with some very strong... Um, they came with some demands, didn't they? Exactly. And what we see this time around is there's a party running to the right of the Danish People's Party. Okay. So... Even the uh, right-wing populist in this country has been sort of yeah. out, outdone by another party that is even further to the right and saying, you know, you should have done a lot more. DF, I mean, we've had since since 2015 uh, 112 immigration restrictions that that have been implemented. With, you can actually see the list on the website. The government right. is very, very proud of these uh, of these immigration restrictions. And but what's interesting, right, is it isn't just actually a right-wing project anymore. The Social Democrats have signed up to the vast majority. Of of these policies, just for example, there's been 14 restrictions for gaining permanent residency. Language requirements for red- residency have been increased. They've abolished free Danish language classes. They're going to place foreigners with deportation orders who cannot be deported onto a polluted island, Lindholm, at a cost of 759 million kroner. Family reunification, lower benefits, the list goes on and on and on. Right. Why has the Social Democrats followed this policy? After the exit of Ms. Hillett-Torning-Smith, who, uh, who resigned from the party chair after she lost the election, Mette Frederiksen came into power in the Social Democratic Party and she made three important changes. Firstly, she was a bit more skeptical of Europe. Hillett-Torning was this great European educated in the European College in Bruges and and a uh, former member of the European Parliament. Metaflexen took the party to a more skeptical position, saying, you know what, uh, they shouldn't run everything out of Brussels. 
And secondly, she moved the party to the left on economics, basically trying to go with a more traditional social democratic economic policy with a focus on welfare and and employment benefits, that sort of stuff. And then very importantly, and I think it's a it's a unique European situation, really. I I don't th- see another place in Europe where, where the social democrats are trying the same thing. They're basically co-opting the Danish People's Party, the populist right-wing party on immigration policies. So they're basically saying, you know what? We basically agree with all this stuff. We should have listened earlier. We should have listened to the protests from out there in the country where, where all these voters are that used to vote for the social democrats but uh, in the last couple of years have voted for the Danish People's Party. They're bringing them back. And so far, it looks like that huge experiment has succeeded as far as the polls go. Exactly. So we're seeing that the Social Democrats, they're, they're going up from about 29 to 31, 32% of the polls. I think that's right. Um, Danish People's Party, they got 21% in the last election. They're floating at about 15% so that they've right. lost almost a third of their voters. Is this, is, this simply, is this really because Social Democrats have decided to follow uh, Danish People's Party voters, voters that aren't actually right wing on anything except for immigration? Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, they're sort of pro-welfare uh, and, and pro-investment in the state or is it because Danish People's Party is being overtaken on the right hand side by the new Borley the the so called new conservatives tell me what do you think about that and could you tell us maybe a little bit about this this party looking at it from the social democratic party's point of view I think that party lost four of the last five elections on the immigration issue I think that is fairly well established the only time they won an election in this century is uh, in 2011 when immigration really wasn't much of an issue. It was right after the financial crisis. That was uh, it was sort of a whole different ballgame. But besides that, that has been the main topic for the last couple of elections. And they have just decided, from a strategic point of view, you know what? We can't if, if we don't do anything on this matter, we're, we're going to keep losing. So they decided to move on the right. But it was not purely a tactical decision. It was also sort of a They've, they've sort of invented this platform of, well, this was actually a true social democratic way of looking at immigration. That is, protecting the welfare state uh, has to go hand in hand with a very restrictive um, immigration policy, which is, of course, what uh, the Danish People's Party have been saying all along. And they've combined it with all these uh, cultural issues about you know, banning the burqa and mandatory handshakes for citizenships and all these these uh, kind of weird little symbolic gestures that they've signed on to. And what is happening from the Danish people's point of view, people's party's point of view, I'm sorry, is that they're being squeezed from the right for the first time ever in this party's existence. You know, usually they have all clear on the right flank Nobody shows up and says, why haven't you been harsh enough on immigration? Because they were the harshest people. Now, all of a sudden, uh, the new conservatives have this very charismatic, uh, fairly young female leader who shows up and says, why haven't you done more? Why are you not protecting Denmark? And he just he can't really find his feet in this debate, Christian uh, Tulsendale, the leader of the Danish People's Party. It is kind of a, a lot of uh, factors that, that run together in this, but it's the change in the Social Democratic Party and that the P- Danish People's Party, for the first time in their existence, has a, an open right flank. 
the fact is the left wing is really smelling blood ahead of this election. Mm-hmm. Um, if there were an election now, the left wing, the red bloc, would probably get about 95 seats, whereas in the blue bloc would only get 80. This doesn't include the four seats that come from uh, from Greenland and the Faroe Islands, of course, but which is, it's a swing of 10 seats compared to the last election. Right. There is some indication that it's because voters are less worried about immigration. I mean, l- remember last time we had the, the, the migration crisis right on the doorstep, you know, just as the election was taking place. It's rather, it's climate now. I mean, a Cantor Gallup poll at the Information published found that 57% of Danes prioritize climate and the environment over immigration and refugees, and only mm-hmm. 35% see the, see the reverse. I mean, is this going to be a climate election? As you said in your, your intro, I'm a, uh, a fairly recent former U.S. correspondent where climate is not really a discussion, even on the left. It's started picking up now. But here, it is the thing that brings the left bloc together, much more than welfare policies where you have a huge span between sort of the traditional hardcore socialists in the unity list on, on the far left. Ina's list. Yeah, Ina's the, list, red, exactly. green al- The red-green alliance. The red-green alliance. Yeah, that's what they call them. Okay, sort of yep, yeah. the red-green alliance. Yeah, yeah. Why not? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and then you have the social liberals yeah. uh, in the center who have a lot more right-wing uh, policies on these matters. You have immigration that has been blown up ever since Metaflex moved to the right on this issue. So the one thing that unites them really is climate. So I've you know, written in my newspaper that in some senses it is more appropriate now to talk about a green bloc than a red bloc because really they don't agree very much on economic policies or um, refugee policy for that matter. What brings them together is climate. And so you see all these left parties competing for the climate vote for all these people who have um, have said that that is their number one priority. You see them kind of trying to outbid each other in this yeah. matter. We're going to reduce uh, p- pollution so much. No, no, no. We're going to do it even better. It's uh, That has really sort of become the competition within the left bloc. Yeah. The thing about it is, as opposed to immigration, it does not move voters between the blocks. So it's kind of an internal struggle at this point yeah. on the left side. But aren't they also in trouble when it comes to climate? I mean, for example, with immigration, if you have that as your main policy platform, mm-hmm. you can enact changes and see changes immediately. You know, you can see um, the a drop in the number of refugees arriving, for example. You see all sorts of immediate changes. Setting a, you know, all the different parties have different targets for 2030 and how much we should reduce uh, climate emissions by. Right. You know, by the time we get to 2023 in the next election, we're not going to see anything. So strategically, I mean, uh, isn't it also aren't they opening themselves up to to being accused of 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 having grand visions that they don't have to um, carry out on some way? I mean, how are they going to show the voters over the next four years that they've that they've really made a difference to people's lives if their platform is climate? You forget the one big fairy tale in this matter in Danish politics, which is the windmill industry that, you know, everybody's kind of pointing to, as you may or may not know, Denmark is a leader in the uh, the, the wind industry and became so kind of, it started out with some hippies in Jutland in the 70s and, and with, you know, state intervention and, and money and finance, it became this grand scale adventure. So that's the thing everybody's pointing to. Why This is not only, you know, to uh, to save the whales or uh, the climate or whatever. It is also great economics for, uh, for a country like Denmark. So that is kind of the story that they're playing into, that this is not just about reducing uh, carbon dioxide in, in the atmosphere or something. It is a real economic strategy that is, that 
that kind of unites this block together. Mm. I mean, in in the US, the big uh, the big lobbyist is the oil industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in Denmark, it's got to be the agricultural industry, right? Uh, right. It's the most uh, heavily um, farmed country in Europe, and um, it's it's you know a large source of Denmark's climate emissions. Um, so the blue block, right? So the Liberal Party, they are traditionally the farmers' right. party. And we've seen them over the last four years be very, very friendly to farmers. And it's sort of backfired. You know, we lost, you know, t- can you tell me a little bit, of, tell us a little bit about that, about, about on the one hand, we've got a blue block that's also trying to situate themselves as climate friendly, mm-hmm. but they're not really doing much about agriculture. I mean, do, is, is, there a, is there an economic conflict there on the blue block? Well, I think the, the main conflict between the blue and the red block in this matter is state intervention. How big of a role should the state play in regulating or taxing or whatever your way to a better climate uh, versus more market-based um, initiatives, really, which is what the, the conservatives stand for, obviously, and which the agricultural industry have been sort of applauding because market-based usually means nothing's going to, nothing's real is going to happen. But even the agricultural industry have been signing on to saying, you know what, we're going to be uh, a climate, uh, what was it, um, carbon dioxide neutral in 2050, I think. They've been trying to kind of get ahead of the curve, knowing there will be a um, probably a left-wing government pretty soon. So they're trying to kind of play into that whole agenda. Hi, I'm James Clasper, and I'm the host of Archipelago, a brand new podcast about arts, culture, and ideas in Denmark. From provocative guests and topical debates to engaging ideas and surprising stories, Archipelago will be talking all things cultural in Scandinavia's smallest island nation. Search for Archipelago on your favorite podcast app and visit mothertongue.dk to find out more. And now, back to the Danish debate. So you you got onto it a little bit before this conflict between um, the Social Democrats and the Social Liberal Party. How are we not going to end up in that same conflict in the, after this next election that we experienced the last time? I mean, who came out on top in that? Oh, we're absolutely going to end up there again yeah. in some way or another. So what happened last time was the Social Democrats won, the Red Bloc won. Actually, the Social Democrats lost a couple of votes in, in that election, but... They ended up in a hotel out in Amma, and they negotiated for three weeks. And basically, the uh, social liberals more or less forced the social democrats to give up their whole platform and run on a different uh, kind of government than they had originally intended. So gone was some of the sort of large-scale uh, social initiatives uh, and, and welfare state improvements. And what remained in the government program were a lot of the more liberal policies. And it even stated that government program that it, they were going to c- continue the conservative government's economic policy in the broadest sense of that word, which infuriated the left really saying, wait a minute, you were elected on a different program. So it was kind of, it was a government conceived in sin somewhat. And, and the, 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 the conservative opposition really played hard on this one. They really beat that horse uh, all the way to their own ele- election victory, saying, you know what, they broke their promises last time, you can't trust them again. Mm. And that was very effective. So she really had a hard time coming back from that. And uh, the whole policy she was pursuing were were sort of uh, Blairite, if you will, but that was really not what she had a mandate for. No. Couldn't we also be seeing an issue 
following this next election with actually the social liberals and these far left parties coming together on immigration and saying to the saying to the social democrats you're not getting any support unless we see better conditions for children in in some of these refugee centers if we don't see you know higher higher benefits for some of these for for particular groups you know a rollback of some of these votes and then that opens up the social democrats again if you know if they go along with that the right wing can just hammer the the left and say hey your only safe vote for 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 strict immigration is a right wing vote um can't we see that happening well, you sound very much like uh, some of the uh, the people on the conservative side have saying exactly this. Yeah. And what is clear is that the four smaller parties in Meta Ferguson's coalition are going to have some demands once she gets in a position to form her government. And some of those are going to be on immigration policy. And I think they're, you can kind of see the structures of what they're going to do. They're probably going to – they're probably going to uh, – Make the uh, make the rules for um, uh, UN refugees a little less tight. They're probably going to do a kind of a things in sort of symbolic things. But Metaflex has just really staked all her credibility that the the basic tenets of the tight immigration policies of this government is going to continue during her government. So. If if she somehow after the election said, you know what, okay, let's let's. Uh, uh, let's make all these policies less tight again. Then um, that would be sort of a major, um, major confidence crisis for her. So nobody really sees that happening. the The, the big issue is how strong is her government going to be? She's 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 running this fantasy. I think it is that a a one party government is going to be extremely strong because she can make deals on immigration with one party, on climate with another party, and she can kind of. Try to try pick to and move choose, yeah. uh, and pick and choose between the blocks uh, when whenever she feels like it, but usually uh, politics is not that uh, that that kind to people, and uh, it's going to be very difficult for her to uh, to run a government like that. But the the point that you're making is that even if her block is winning, which everything looks like is going to happen. Then it might be a mess after the election. I mean, just to, just to round off, I think you know, to some of our listeners who uh, might this might be the first time that they're hearing about this complicated, you know, right. multi-party government system. I find it very exciting, <laughs> but while it sounds complicated, it looks like when you read the papers and the politics, it's really you know, the election campaigns seem really founded on on hardcore policy, um, and the government is pushing through some policies right now on on health reform and and all sorts of different things to, that that sort of are, are appealing to voters and they. And mm-hmm. there doesn't seem to be very much populism. You know, if we read the international press and we read, you know, the New York Times or whatever, there is this real, you know, ahead of the European elections, especially, there is this fear that politics is moving towards sort of nativist and uh, sort of simplified messages, unrealistic messages, you know. But that doesn't seem to be happening in Denmark. Is there a link between this multi-party system and the, the foundation of a, of, a, of a politics on in policy? Or or is there something else that's that's making Denmark... From my perspective, at least, more you know, more immune to populistic tendencies. I mean, hmm. what, what do you feel about that? It's a very good question. I think the the unique feature from a structural point of view of Danish politics in this matter is that the Danish People's Party, our right wing party, our um, British Nationalist Party, uh, uh, Sweden Democrats, that that whole thing, they have a very different strategy from the European counterparts. They have been actually supporting a government. They've been basically in government without holding uh, cabinet minister posts. So they have, um, while they do have sort of a, 
the same outlook as some of those parties. They have been governing very differently. I mean, they've been willing to compromise on some issue and they've moved policy in their direction. While, you know, some of the others that you're talking about are sort of standing on the sidelines, still yelling. Now, what what is happening actually in Denmark is that we're getting sort of a new populist party in the new conservatives that is much more in line with that uh, sort of the whole European mainstream. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But they're still only put, they're only polling up to four percent. It's not exactly like they're a, a groundswell support for this party. It's they're still relatively minor. No, but what what might happen is that they might move the Danish People's Party to the right. But can they? I mean, I feel like what the, the difference between the New Conservatives and the Danish People's Party is that the New Conservatives are, are demanding things which are just, you know, like structurally, constitutionally not possible. You know, it, right. it requires revoking, you know, pulling out of international treaties to do with human rights and so on and so on. Things that you know, Denmark simply, for its size, this small, vulnerable economy, simply can't do. Well, you can't build a wall to Mexico. Or no. you can't, I mean, that is the, the basic tenet of populism. That is yeah. uh, promising these things that sort of sound good but has no real basis or yeah. foundation in, in realpolitik. And the yeah. Danish People's Party have been playing realpolitik for so many years, they've sort of forgotten some yeah. of their populist roots now. Could it be possible to say that by involving the Danish People's Party in politics, giving them a voice and, and allowing them to contribute to policy, it has prevented the worst of the populist movements, perhaps given, you know, that there is, there, for example, right. look at Sweden with the, with the exclusion of the Swedish Democrats. I mean, that's another strategy, which is to say, you know what, we, we can't listen to them because they're simply not, um, you know, their the, the policies are simply, they, they, they're, they're, they're no good. But they're growing and growing and growing. Now we're seeing mm-hmm. a decline of the of the Sweden of the, the of the Danish People's Party and a move towards climate. I mean, is there something about that? Do you think about giving people a voice and not allowing them to 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 maintain that narrative of being excluded and on the edge and weird? You know, it's certainly a very uh, valid point and a, a very uh, um, widespread theory, I think. And uh, what we're going to see in this election, what it has, what has happened, it that is that it has moved the left side very, very much on immigration. And that is very unique, I think. It places very uh, Denmark in a very unique position in Europe. And we'll, we'll, we're witnessing a grand political experiment that I, I know from personal experience and from speaking to colleagues around in Europe, you know, people are looking at saying, hmm, is this a way to go? Maybe if you're looking at the, the social democrats in Germany or even labor in, uh, in Great Britain, they're sort of trying to find their feet in some of these debates. I mean, SPD in Germany is melting down. They're looking up here saying, hmm, are we going to have to go try to learn from this small party? Let's see how this plays out. So we have a, a sort of interesting laboratory going in Danish politics that might affect the uh, wider developments in Europe. Yeah. So Christian, you you spent all these years in, in, in the US. What's the biggest misconception do you think that people have out in the world about Denmark as a country? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, uh, I remember speaking to Bernie Sanders before he got famous talking about Denmark and he knew so much about, you know, all the good sides of it. And I was thinking, hmm, should I, <laughs> should I kind, of, kind of tell him about all the downsides? But I, I, I chose not to. Exactly. From so, my, it's all, so it's all your fault. Okay, that's great, Christian. A final question. When's the election going to be? Oh, Give my me goodness. a day. Uh, you know, everybody's putting their money on the same day as the European election, May 26th right now. But... You know, I've covered uh, Donald Trump from joke to president, so I, I've stopped making predictions about anything. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a great way to end. Thank you so much, Christian, for your time. Thank you so much. On the next episode of The Danish Debate, 
I ask, is the closure of a successful radio station a sign that anti-globalist populism has also become mainstream in the Danish parliament? I think that definitely they have underestimated the backlash because people are just furious. We don't have millions of listeners in Denmark, but the group of listeners we have are extremely loyal. So they, they're just furious with them. And I think they've definitely, um, I think they've underestimated Danes in general. Like the whole, um, we just need to move out a radio station because then it, the country will get more even. It's just, you know, people aren't that stupid. The Danish Debate is a new podcast about Danish society and politics. It's produced by Mother Tongue Media, a home for English language podcasts in Denmark. Remember, we've also got a fantastic new podcast about arts, culture and ideas in Denmark. It's called Archipelago and it's hosted by James Clasper, an English journalist based here in Copenhagen who's written for heavyweights such as The New York Times, The Guardian and The Financial Times too. Go check it out. It's really great. James and I believe there's a space for high-quality English-language journalism and storytelling here in Denmark, especially in podcasting. And that's what we're trying to do here with the Danish Debate in Archipelago. Please visit mothertongue.dk to find out more. In fact, if you like this episode, please take a minute to review us on Apple Podcasts or mention it on Twitter, tagging the Danish Debate or Archipelago. Reviews and shares on social media will really help more people find us, and uh, that's what it's all about. This episode was written, edited and produced by me, Peter Stannis, and published by Mother Tongue Media. See you next time.